The Ancient Magic of Kites by Noor Brara from the New York Times magazine. For millennia, kites have mesmerized people around the world. Now, a new generation of artists is taking their creations to greater heights. One night two millennia ago, a Han Dynasty general sent a square-shaped assemblage of bamboo and cloth into the air above enemy territory in central China. He was trying to measure how much earth his men would need to tunnel through to breach their adversary's defence line. It is one of the most famous early stories of kite flying. Similar devices were later used by other Chinese armies. They launched them after dark in whipping winds in hopes that the noise would scare off foes and used them to deliver threats via missives tied to the kite's tails. In 1232, Chinese military kites dropped pages of propaganda into the compound of a Mongolian prisoner of war camp, inciting first a riot and then a mass escape. Today, of course, these delicate aircraft, built from light wood or plastic frames shaped to create lift, covered in a thin material such as paper or silk, and piloted via long strings, are considered toys, not tools of warfare. And yet they have captivated us for centuries, serving a range of practical and spiritual functions in cultures around the world. In Singapore and Borneo, fishers have long trailed lures from kites attached to their boats. In Japan, washi paper versions, often depicting scenes from legends, have been flown for good luck since the 17th century. On Good Friday in Bermuda, people gather on beaches to fly enormous multicoloured kites in homage to Christ's ascension. And on the Indonesian island of Bali, villagers construct kites up to four metres high, shaped like leaves, birds and fish, to fly in competitions as gratitude for a successful harvest. Despite their ubiquity, though, kites have rarely been the subject of serious study. Even their origin story has seemed uncertain since the 1997 discovery of a prehistoric Indonesian cave painting of what appears to be a floating rhomboid. It seems likely, though, that kites originated in China or Southeast Asia and were brought by merchants, missionaries and soldiers from Korea, Japan and later Myanmar and India, where they can be seen in 17th century Mughal paintings. Less clear is how they arrived in the West. Some sources suggest Marco Polo, who travelled through Asia in the late 13th century, observed Chinese sailors using wind-carried devices to gauge incoming weather patterns and brought some back to Europe. Tailless kites, modelled on medieval pennant-shaped military banners, appeared in English and Dutch drawings from the early 1600s. Over the next century, flying kites, often in diamond or pear shapes and crafted from silk with ornamental tails, became a popular pastime for children in Europe. From there, the kite travelled to North America, where it informed two of the defining advancements of the modern age. In 1752, American polymath Benjamin Franklin famously attempted to harness electricity by sending a kite hooked to a thin metal wire, an ill-fashioned lightning rod, into a thunderstorm. And starting in 1899, the Wright brothers' trials with gliders and man-lifting kites helped pave the way for the first powered aeroplane in 1903. The Wright brothers were obsessive kite flyers, says American kite historian and maker Scott Skinner, 69. Yet no museums have their kites. 
once they invented the aeroplane, that's what became important. Indeed, very few major cultural institutions have deemed kites worthy of inquiry or preservation. But in the early 1990s and early 2000s, kite flying experienced a boom in the American West and parts of Europe, due in part to the popularisation of kite surfing. Groups of kiters who gathered at windswept places like the Hawaiian island of Maui, the city of Seattle in the Pacific northwest of the US, and the Atlantic coast of France, began to take interest in its law. During this period, in 1995, Skinner founded the Draken Foundation, a non-profit in Seattle that sought to reframe kites as historical art objects through workshops and residency programs for young makers. The idea was to raise kites above the toy level, he says. Skinner, whose large-scale patchwork creations marry Japanese kite-making motifs with the American quilting tradition, belongs to a generation of established craftspeople. Two others are 71-year-old master Japanese kite-maker Mikio Toki, known for his fantastical hand-painted designs, and the late Chinese-American kite artist and Disney animator Tyrus Wong, who was renowned for 30-metre-long centipede-shaped kites. Thus, a wave of younger artists has been inspired to pioneer new forms. In Austria, Anna Rubin, 48, conjures surreal bamboo and paper creations that are designed, she says, to resemble things that shouldn't be flown on a kite, including coal-black meteors and striped hammocks. Rubin often employs ancient Japanese methods for her art, including hand-splitting the bamboo for the frames and using hand-pressed natural fibres to cover them. She wants to carry on traditions she fears may be lost by a culture fixated on the future, but she's equally inspired by the joy of the work. Everyone should, once in their life, make a kite and fly it, she says. And in New York, visual artist Jacob Hashimoto, 49, assembles massive installations from dozens of palm-sized kites to hang from the ceiling of his studio or gallery. He inherited his interest in kite-making from his father, whose own father taught him techniques he'd learnt as a boy in Japan. Hashimoto is one of the few kite artists to have broken into the mainstream art world. To him, the craft is a way to honour our shared humanity. To look at his works, such as 2017's The Eclipse, which comprises roughly 16,000 black-and-white disc-like kites that form a swooping cloud evoking the texture of a bird's wing, is to feel surrounded by a flock of fluttering creatures or swept up by some collective greater upwards motion. That kite-making is a pan-cultural practice makes it a beautiful democratic thing, he says. In many ways, it's a global property. We all own the relationship between us and the sky. His work is a reminder that, especially after a period when so many people were forced to stay rooted in place, kites offer us a means to defy gravity. In the hands of a willing flyer, they give us a way up and out. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.